made it we've and it's fine uh but uh we'll be looking at hebrews 7 1 through 10 today if you want to turn there 7 1 through 10 uh, if you don't have a bible please grab one over there we try to teach the very basic and healthy discipline of having the bible open before you at a center baptist so um we've been learning in hebrews about christ's superiority uh, if you haven't got that yet get it today because <laughs> we've been talking about it a lot um but so in hebrews 1 we got this awesome introduction um if christ has a resume check out hebrews 1 the beginning uh like we talked about when we taught it um that just displays i mean how how does anybody measure up uh, to this god man and then from there through hebrews four thirteen, we learned about and we've been learning more as we've been studying, hopefully at home as well, but uh, how Christ is better than angels. And he is a greater messenger. He has a greater message. And within that message, he is uh, offering a greater salvation and he's a greater savior. Um, we've been learning about how Christ is better than Moses. And if, I think it talked about like, if Moses was the house and we're the house, then Christ is our builder and our, cape, our caretaker. And there's also a better rest provided through Christ. Like Moses and the people, they ended up getting the promised land and Christ provided for us the kingdom of heaven. And uh, from Hebrews 4.14 to the end of 6, chapter 6, the author introduces something we're going to kind of start to start to ease into today. But the author introduces... The reality of how Christ is our great high priest and how relying on Jewish tradition and refusing Christ's position as high priest or ignoring his position or being lazy about believing the reality of his position leads to negative consequences for those uh, who do actually, actually believe and or those who think they believe uh, but their belief will not endure. Then, at the end of the last chapter, um, we heard taught last week, uh, the author touches on how the irrevocable nature of God's purpose and word, as well as the oath uh, that he declared publicly, um, it culminated in Christ. And he has become the steadfast anchor of our souls. He is our hope that intercedes with us in the most uh, holy of places. He goes behind the curtain and he is the forerunner on our behalf. And Laura gave us that great illustration of the boat that goes before the other boats to make sure that they can even make it to shore. A lot of nautical stuff um, earlier in Hebrews that was brought up as well with Prosecco and Perereo holding fast, getting to the shore or missing the shore. Um, so he was able to do all this because Christ became our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
everyone can say that name, right? Does anybody <laughs> see their name? I, I skipped that name. Melchizedek, you can say it. Melchizedek, cool. Okay, as long as we're good there. Um, don't be afraid of the name. But uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be kind of an interesting class because we're going to focus on Melchizedek. It's got about 10 verses about him. Um, so uh, he's the king priest. We're going to look at how this great king and priest Melchizedek, he's greater than Abraham, the greatest of the Jewish patriarchs, huge deal, and is thus greater than the priesthood that derived from the tribe of Levi. And with that basic through line of like Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and because he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than them as well. With that basic through line, with Melchizedek, we're going to look at how this passage in 7, 1 through 10 talks about how he is the, he's the king priest of God Most High. He's the king priest who blesses. He's the king priest who endures, and he's the king priest who receives. Um, so let's look at 7, 1 through 10, if you'd like to read along. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Does somebody want to read the rest, five through ten? <coughs> Thank you, Mary. Okay, so for the Hebrews uh, that this letter was given to, um, priesthood was a really serious uh, concern of life. The priesthood was highly exalted and very intrinsic uh, to Judaism. And the Jews, they had, <laughs> it's so weird to think about, but they had physical people that would work at the physical temples, physical, and earlier it was the tabernacle, and they would literally be involved in the supernatural connection between God and the people. That It's crazy to think of having that, and having that for years and years and years. Uh, the Latin word for priest is pontifex, uh, which if you pull it apart, 
It means bridge builder or bridge maker. They were the bridge between the people and Christ, or and God, sorry. <laughs> but uh, this was uh, very pivotal to their lives, super important. Uh, it's important to their joy from God. It was important to um, the way that they expressed their love through obedience. And there's over a dozen centuries of God-given tradition that temporarily cured the problem of men breaking God's perfect law. And so this stuff was, for them, it was, at the time, it was life or death. This stuff was, we either follow these things that he commanded us or we die. It was, uh, this was uh, obeying God at that time. It was, it was a blessing. I mean, it's still, I think, a tenet that lives on in a way. But um, obeying God was blessing. Disobeying God was curses. So the Hebrews here, with what he's pushing here, we're talking about Melchizedek, they are understandably confused. Yes. But they are also understandably wrong. Absolutely wrong because of what Christ did. And as far as they are holding on to these traditions, instead of recognizing Christ's fulfillment of those commands, then they are ignoring what he did with his death and his resurrection. So there's a real struggle going on here. I mean, that's why God is having this writer write to them. But the writer has been proving to us again and again that the Holy Spirit is indeed inspiring him um, with these huge points that he's making, uh, pulling from the Old Testament, um, making connections for us with the New Testament, the Old Testament. And so he's going to do that again today. And when he does, he's going to do this cool kind of like Bible ninjutsu thing and go back to Melchizedek before these priestly traditions even started. So he's going to be like, oh, you're caught up in these traditions. Let's go back. Let me show you something that you missed or that you may have read, but you didn't get it. Let me show you. Amazing. So in verse 1 and 2, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to start looking at how Melchizedek and Abraham compare. In verse 1 and 2, they're referring to this moment in history in Genesis 14. And since this is Hebrews, let's actually do the work. If you want, please turn to Genesis 14. We can look at this. Um, go to Genesis 14, 17. <clears throat> but in Genesis uh, 14, 1 through 16, leading up to this section, there's this war going on between four kings and five kings. And uh, on the five kings side, there are these two kings. There's the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. That's happening. They're part of the five king side that's warring against these four kings. And during the war, which was in the Valley of Siddim, or it's the Valley of the Salt Sea, there were these dangerous natural oil pits called bitumen pits. If you've ever been reading, you're like, what's, I'm sure maybe all of us have Googled it at one point. Like, what am I reading? But <laughs> there are these bitumen pits, these oil pits. And it says in verse 10 of Genesis 14, 10 through 12, as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, the bitumen pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, Abram's nephew, who was dwelling in Sodom, 
and then his possessions and went their way. So Abram finds out about this and he grabs 318 of his men and likely it's, it's possible, I don't know, it's um, read different things about it, but possibly some more people because he was with his allies and his allies are clearly there. Uh, you see that at the end of the chapter. But regardless, they go in with less people. <laughs> that's, that's the point. They do an incredible thing. Um, and through these excellent tactics of warfare, um, and as verse 16 says, Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. So he defeated them and brought everything back. And keep in mind, this is happening before Sinai. This is before the ten plagues, before deliverance from Egypt. This is before water from the rock. This is before a huge list. So the Hebrews who are like listening to what the author saying, this is before a huge list of things that makes up their identity as people. He's bringing up this story. Um, and Abram... He acted, even in this story, which is interesting, he acted as a type of Christ in this story, being the kinsman redeemer of his nephew Lot. So this story is like, this is, wow, Abraham's such a great guy. What an amazing, he really is the best. Oh, I'm happy I'm reading this. Um, but what's weird is, so by the power of God, he carried out this impossible rescue mission, which became a conquering defeat of the enemy. And this is one of those awesome cases where you can kind of say like, yeah. They messed with the wrong God on this one. Uh, and then he came and destroyed them. Well, what's weird is it's after this incredible display, kinsman redeemer, amazing man, Christ-like, and, you know, Christ-type, then Melchizedek is introduced into the story. So, you're like, you're reading this, and this amazing thing happens. You're like, wow, this is so cool. And then this guy walks in. And you're like, okay. And this really interesting thing happens. Melchizedek walks in. And Genesis 14, 17 through 20. Does somebody want to read Genesis 14, 17 through 20? I guess I'll say, would somebody please read Genesis 14? Thanks, Janet. So, um, after that, we see a contrast between how Abram treated Melchizedek and how he treated the king of Sodom. Um, where, with Melchizedek, he gave a tenth of everything, which is a lot, by the way. These are spoils of war from multiple kings. He gives him a tenth of everything. Um, but with the king of Sodom, he refuses, he refused to keep any of the possessions he got back that belonged to the king of Sodom because he didn't want any of his riches to be riches that he got from Sodom. He didn't want the king of Sodom to have any credit whatsoever uh, for the job that God was carrying out through him. 
All right, now that we've like done that work, let's go back to Hebrews 7. If you want to turn back there, Hebrews 7. Uh, we've taken a moment to look at what the author's referring to here. It's important. So, back to Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. In the first few verses, the author gives important details about the identity and significance of Melchizedek for the believer's benefit. Would somebody please read verses 1 through 4 again? Chapter 7, Hebrews 7. Sure, yeah, three and four as well. Okay. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made life the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Thank you so much. So, Melchizedek, uh, one of the first things we see in these verses. Um, they sh- it shows us that Melchizedek was a king priest of the Most High God. Um, and scripture identifies um, only one other person as being a king and a priest. And who is that? The Sunday school answer, Jesus. Um, yeah. Uh, what else was he? What else was Jesus? King and priest. Prophet, right. King, priest, and prophet. So we've all, we already know Christ has got him in the bag. He wins this fight. But he's a king and priest. Nobody else uh, is recorded here that has that. But although Melchizedek wasn't a prophet, he was set apart with this coalesced ministry with roles that Israel heavily differentiated between. But he just was doing them both. No priest in the Old Testament could lawfully act as a king. And no king in the Old Testament could lawfully act as a priest. There's an example of this in Isaiah 6. There's a king named Uzziah, not to be confused with many other names that sound the same, Uzziah. Um, But he's this king who, he died in disgrace, in defiance of God's law, because he was trying to be a king and act as a priest as well. And God judged King Isaiah with leprosy and cut him off from his people. And this is super different from Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek, he was a king priest of Salem, but he wasn't even part of the tribe of Israel. There was no cutting off to be had. And he was considered priest of Most High God. Uh, To a traditional Hebrew, this would have been like a shattering reality, especially the Hebrews who are reading this. They're like, what point is he trying to make? And as they're trying to like, as they're slowly realizing this point, they're like, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) This is, this is insane. This is very different. Um, But it's been there in scripture the whole time. It's been in their Torah. God most high is a name that God uses for himself uh, that we see back in Genesis 14. So it means that 
Melchizedek was a priest of the God of the Israelites without being an Israelite or a sojourner of the Israelites. He was just a godly man that God had appointed to a greatly influential position for his glory. And he was being a godly man and he became a king and a priest, but he was doing so amongst an ancient pagan world that practiced horrible beliefs, things like henotheism. A henotheism is where we have the belief that you have an, a hierarchy of gods. Well, this god's down here, but you know, he graduated to this point, <laughs> whatever the complication. These, so Melchizedek is functioning, and it seems like from the scripture, he's functioning very well since he's a king priest doing both. And he's doing it like, I mean, I, you know, alone in a sense, but he doesn't have this Israel nation with him. He's doing it. And it's amazing. He just comes in, he just walks in like, hey, Abraham, that was really, that was really cool, man. Um, Abram, it's an amazing thing. Um, and uh, this in itself, the fact that he was able to do that, that means a lot to us. Um, it's a, it reveals a remarkable truth about the superiority of God uh, to the Hebrews reading this letter and to us. God is able to create godly kingdoms where he chooses. And I mean, we see that with Christ and later with grafting in the Gentiles. But at, he was doing it all the way back here. He's got this godly kingdom all the way back here. And it's not, it's not the Jews. It's very, very strange. Um, to the Hebrew, he's saying basically like, although you as a Hebrew are very special to me, it's very important. And I'm not at all... What are you going to say? You can finish your thought. <laughs> okay, sorry. sorry. I stop. Um, you're very special to me. My plan is, but my plan is bigger than you and your people. Um, it's bigger than what you consider to be your identity. And uh, the author of Hebrews is, of course, challenging that identity and helping them to have their identity in Christ. And let me pause for a second, because now that I'm teaching this, I'm kind of like, oh, this kind of alludes to something. Um, there are different schools of thought on this. I am somebody who, my opinion, I am somebody who thinks that for Israel, their story is going to come to an amazing thing as time goes by. Um, we are Christians, we are Gentiles, we're grafted in, we're all, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll share something with you. In the classes I've been taking on the prophecies, they have this really good illustration they've shared twice. And basically it's the prophets back in the day, they were in a tunnel. And in that tunnel, they could see ahead of them, right? So imagine you're in this tunnel. And they could see ahead of them, they could see all of these things that God was saying about how he was going to fulfill things for the Israelites. He was going to fulfill things for the Jewish nation. All of these things. And he says beautiful things to the prophets. Like, a lot of judgment, right? But he follows it with like, oh, you're going to come back to a land filled with greenery, filled with so much, so many vines, so much, so much fruit. It's going to be great. And the way that they talk about it is like, as you go through the Bible, you walk down that tunnel, and then you step out of the tunnel, and that's still there. That's not going anywhere, and that's how I feel. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to push this on anybody. I'm just sharing. That's still there. That is going to happen, right? But when you come out, your peripherals open up, and you see us. You see the Gentiles. You're like, oh, this is like, this is a huge plan. This is amazing. You know, it's a, 
It's for God. It brings God glory. Um, so I'm just saying, that's kind of the illustration there. It's like, it seems like it's going to happen. And I think that what we're seeing with these peripherals, with Melchizedek, we're kind of seeing like this old, ancient, like, tip of the hat to what that was going to be. And I think what he's saying is like, what the author of Hebrews is saying is when you do that, when you walk through and you look at what Christ has done, you see those peripherals. It's like, let me point back to you. Let me do something interesting for you. Let me point back to you where those peripherals were hinted at before with Melchizedek. What are you going to say? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I like where you're taking this. The, uh, we tend to be like the Israelites. And we kind of like go back to the law and how Christ is the fulfillment of the law. But, you know, it's interesting. When the law came, and Paul alludes to this in the book of Galatians, I think the writer of Hebrews is doing it here. And that is, God knew that Israel was going to fail at the law. And so he did these things previously. There was a different order of priests, priest kings. Hmm. Um, Melchizedek. You get to the very next chapter, chapter 15, verse 6, and we see that Abraham believed God and it was credited to his righteousness. So he like establishes these things before the law so yeah. that you know ultimately Israel would be just like you were, you know, ultimately Israel is going to get the promises, but it's going to be under the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And, and through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Praise the Lord, they failed. Because this is the new <laughs> covenant. You know, we all get to participate in this. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, um, it is interesting. We tend to kind of just get locked into the Old Testament priesthood. But we forget that, you know, Noah functioned as a priest for his family. Mm. Uh, Joe functioned as a priest for, you know, you have yeah. um, Jethro. He was the priest of Midian. You know, when, when Moses comes out to me, and he offers sacrifices to God. So after they all got off the boat, <laughs> there wasn't all of God. There was still, you know, people bringing sacrifices to the one true God. But it was dying out. And God had to move to reveal himself to the nation of Israel where the knowledge of God was sure. ceasing yet. Um, and so it, it, it is interesting to kind of, he is, he's taking them back before mm-hmm. the law. Say, hey, look, you know, there's something that transcends this, and yeah, God knew you were going to fail. <laughs> there, <laughs> there was going to have to be another means um, mm-hmm. for you uh, to, to be in the land. But at any rate, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. That's super helpful. That's great clarification. Um, yeah, it was established, but they became obsessed with, you know, the tradition, which is, under, again, understandable, but still flat out wrong. Um, as we go forward, we can also see in this uh, how Melchizedek is the king priest who blesses. This is really cool. So after Abraham's victory in Genesis 14, again, we see this contrast. The king of Sodom came over to negotiate with Abram. But the king of Salem, Melchizedek, he came over to bless Abram. And he did so with bread and wine. Interesting to think of the foreshadowing there. But with Christ in mind, the author of Hebrews is making this critical point of contrast between Melchizedek and Abraham. I have Abram just because of the context. But Abraham. And he's saying in verse 7, uh, it says down in Hebrews 7 7 it says 
basically that the superior always blesses the inferior. And therefore, this exchange between them, for the Hebrew readers, of course, and for us, is totally astounding. Melchizedek is superior, uh, blessing Abraham, the head of the old covenant between Israel and God. Abraham in the Old Testament is a hero to the Jewish nation. And uh, he's a highly exalted man, if not the highest uh, exalted man of the Old Testament. Yet, as it is being pointed out in this passage, Melchizedek, a non-Israelite king-priest, acts as a superior, blessing Abraham, uh, blessing Abram, who in this case would be considered the inferior. Abram, who had just acted as a type of Christ for our benefit, having victory over the enemy for the sake of being an honorable kinsman redeemer, seemingly taking out something like four kings, <laughs> a lot of soldiers. Um, it's, it's, I don't know, it's funny. Uh, but Melchizedek, he's considered uh, the greater of the two characters. And that's what God is trying to show us in this narrative. The story plays out this way. He's trying to point out, like, look at these two characters. Look what's transpiring here. And, uh... Yeah, Abram agrees with that. You know, he doesn't struggle with it. He immediately, it gives you some, some of, sheds a little bit of light on, like, where Abram was, how God was working in Abram at this point. He'd be like... Oh, Melchizedek, I have just met you. <laughs> you know, maybe you knew him before, but he agrees. He gives him a tenth of everything. He just won. And who knows the emotional turmoil he might have been going through um, with his nephew doing all this, going through war. Um, awful, awful thing. Coming back with the spoils. The first thing he does when he meets Melchizedek is, I'm going to give you a tenth. Um, he gives it to the king of Salem, the righteous king, this peaceful king. And just for the sake of nerding out, um, his name actually means king of righteousness. It comes from Hebrew Melek and Hebrew Sadek. And these are the transliterated versions with just like a little MLK and a little ZDK. I tried, it's been a, been a while since I was in Hebrew class, but I tried to do some, uh, some handwritten Hebrew here. But this would obviously be switched because it's backwards. But Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And they talk about also in the text how it's king of Salem, which is king of peace. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of theologians that, particularly because I think of a, a certain passage in Psalms and some other reasons, they seem to think that Salem later becomes Jerusalem. Or if anything, it at least alludes to it, which is a powerful message for the reality of Melchizedek. This is a beautiful thing. Um, the passage also touches on how Melchizedek was the king priest who endures. Um, some people have looked at verse 3. You might have heard this before. Or maybe as a kid. I, I struggled with this as a kid. I was like, wow. this." Um, but in verse 3, some people have walked away literally believing that Melchizedek is immortal. Um, that is not the case here. Uh, a closer reading of this passage reveals that the eternality that they're talking about in Melchizedek is not his personhood, that's not, but the subject of verse 3, the eternality of Melchizedek, is his priesthood. And uh, 
for the sake of just application for a moment, pause here, because to be honest, it's, it's pretty hard to, to, for me at least, uh, when I was preparing this to uh, pull application out. But uh, pausing for a second, do we have an eternality in our lives? Do we have like something about us in our lives that is eternal? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. So we do. We've got something. Um, what does that eternality like? What does that look like for us as we live? Fear of death. Fear of death. Okay, how so? Because we know it's not going to end. We know, everybody knows that our souls are eternal. Even they can talk to us out of it, but that's a big part of fear of death is hmm. knowing that we're going to continue after death. Sure, okay. What about, an, what about an eternality that we can relate to with Melchizedek? How can we relate to the way that Melchizedek's, how he endures through time, how this verse is kind of talking about like forever, you know? How can we relate in that way to Melchizedek? Or is this just a guy with a weird name and it's like, whatever, and <laughs> cool, I don't know, it doesn't apply to me. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the verb there is, but may, like the Son of God. So, I mean, I would see, you know, his association, the fact that, and, and I would say that this was a literary, you know, made like sure. the Son of God. Yeah. So the way he's presented in Scripture, we're not told about his mother, we're not told about his father. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he has no end. We, we don't read that he died, you know, those kinds of sure. things. So, I mean, I mean, his enduring legacy is, is he foreshadowed Christ? Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, he was made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Yeah, and that's a... Uh, continues on in Christ. NASB? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's got New, uh, New American Standard there. Yeah, it actually... ESV, it says resembling the Son of God, so more so with what you're saying. It's like resemble, not like, you know, is, is Christ. But, so it famously says... What are you saying? Oh. Sorry, behind you. <laughs> Sorry, Mary. <laughs> Just like, no, 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 not me, not me. Please don't. <laughs> you the dots, look, is that Christ, we are after the image of Christ as well. And we are priests in a sense after Christ. So, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. First Peter uh, 2.9 famously says, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, yeah, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The imagery of the um, darkness and the light has been there for a very long time, and it was happening here too. In Melchizedek, we see light. Um, Melchizedek's priesthood is actually a picture now um, of our own as Gentiles because of Christ's priesthood, because of Christ, because Christ is from the order of Melchizedek now, it's a part of our lives. Uh, Melchizedek, he wasn't a priest because his father was a priest, uh, nor was he a priest who had successors. 
Um, the author is trying to communicate the unprecedented nature of Melchizedek's priesthood. The priesthood to the God Most High was given by God's choice, by divine ordination. Like Jason was saying, it was established. Melchizedek was not an immortal man, but his service to the Lord as a priest, just like our service to the Lord in doing what's good, doing things that are righteous, obeying him, those live forever. When we do the other things, they, wherever they fit, whether they're sin or just like mundane things, they pass by. Sure. Yeah, I believe so, yes. Just because it comes from, like, something is established back here with Melchizedek, it's brought to its, like, climax, right, in Christ, and it just stays that way. You know, he's just, he's high priest. It's, it's covered. It's covered in every way, you know. Um, it has been, God has been more so revealed later on, and it is unbelievable, and he calls us to imitate him and in that way be priests ourselves um, in a sense but it continues on that priesthood continues on especially and that's this is with us as well none of us I don't think have any um, Levitical familial descent it continues on apart from that so Jesus who was also not from the tribe of Levi um, he was a priest he is a priest and as well, he is a prophet and a king, and Christ's priesthood has now come to us, working within us for the glory of God the Father. It's a really, really... It's, uh, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are just supposed to make you be in awe of who God is, not for the sense of weird yoga feelings, but for the sense of actual just awe of the soul. We need to take time to feel that sometimes. This has come all the way to us. Whew. So that's how Melchizedek is the king priest who endures. His priesthood was not limited by a temple or by a race of people. So Melchizedek is also the king priest who receives. In verse 4, we are led back to Abram's response to Melchizedek's blessing, giving him a... Uh, Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils, a tenth of everything. Um, one does not give a tithe to another without it being an obligation. Now, obligation sounds like a dirty word. And here, of course, with us, it's not. It's a beautiful thing. It's a loving and honoring thing. But it's an obedience all the same. But that's how Abram responds here. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek because of what God Most High was doing through him. He sees it as an obedience. Oh, I, I need to give this guy... I need to help this guy continue this, right? It's kind of what we do at church. It's not about giving to anyone specific here. It's about giving to Christ, right? And verse 4 tells us to see how great this man was. It like flat out says, see how great this man was uh, to whom, Adrian, or to whom uh, Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. A patriarch, of course, um, being a title that denotes the highest level of honor in the Jewish life. Um, would somebody please read verses 5 through 10 again? 
5 through 10. I got it. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have the commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. To these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man does not have his descendant from them received the tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One may even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Awesome, thank you. And uh, before we continue forward, any questions or comments at this point? Everyone's good. Everyone's super excited about learning about Melchizedek right now. <laughs> All right, verses 5 through 10. Thank you for reading, Jorge. So in verse 5, the author is pointing out uh, that the Levites and the ones who tithed to them were both descendants of Abraham. Uh, meaning that the Levites who, they had a law that required tithes from their brothers. Uh, they were descendants from a patriarch who freely tithed uh, to um, the person that he considered to be the superior. And as verse six makes clear, this man, Melchizedek, wasn't even a descendant of the patriarch like the Levites were. Yet he received a tithe from that patriarch and blessed the patriarch. So it is in this way that Melchizedek's priestly order, it supersedes the priestly order of the future Levitical priests. And that is why Christ himself is after the priestly order um, of Melchizedek. Again, because the Levitical priests they are descendants from Abraham, yet Melchizedek surpasses Abraham. So also in verse 6, we can see that Abraham, he had the promises. Um, these likely refer to the promises that God made to Abraham when he covenanted with Abraham. And we can see that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Yet Melchizedek, he gave a blessing to someone who already had those promises. He's giving a blessing to someone who was walking forward through life with the promises of God. Abraham, who at the time seems to be possibly the most blessed person on the planet, um, he could still be blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek still walks up and blesses this man. Like, oh, let me have you go forward here. And this is another reason that testifies to the greatness of Melchizedek, and obviously Abraham's reaction to that says everything too. The most blessed man in the world, this guy walks up and blesses him, and he's like, mm, yes, this is the way it should be. Let me give you, give you a tenth. Um, so in verse eight, it's a little bit confusing, but what it's saying is that in verse eight again, it says, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. And that one case being 
at the beginning, that one case being the Levitical law, uh, they were mortal men who would die and be replaced and be replaced and be replaced by their descendants. Eventually, until their priesthood died out, temple was destroyed. But in the other case, the other case that it says here, that is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Tithes are received by Christ. Christ has continued this priesthood. It goes forever. Christ is not a mortal man. He raised from the dead. He proved his divinity. So it shows that Christ's priestly, or that Melchizedek's priestly order goes forever. Um, and lastly, in verses 9 and 10, the author of Hebrews uses this Old Testament concept um, by saying that one might even say that the, the uh, Levitical priests tithed to Melchizedek in a way. Um, although they didn't exist yet in Genesis 14, they did in the sense that the Levites came from Abraham. What he's saying, and this was kind of an understanding of the way that you could like express something at the time. This is understandable, like how he would express it. He's like, since you were in the loins of Abraham at the time, since you were in his DNA, you're going to be born from this man. Since you were there, in that sense, you paid tithes to Melchizedek. Because later on, the Levites are, have, a, have a law for tithes from their brothers. He's like, um, the very traditions that you're holding on to, where the Levites had a law, back in the day, you were still in your father Abraham, and you tithed to Melchizedek. So let that be a lesson for you Hebrews that this is a very superior man. That's an amazing thing as well. Um, and that's pretty much all I've got about Kizedek for today. Um, sorry to put you through a class where we don't talk about Christ the whole time. <laughs> but we're setting this up. We're setting the ground for next week where we're going to start... Letting, looking at how the author compares with this guy. This guy just blew Abram out of the water. He blew the Levites out of the water. He, so he, he blew out of the water somebody who's so important to their history, the father of who they came from. I don't know if they sang Father Abraham when they were <laughs> Jews. But, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how they sing. But, uh, <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof or something. But, that, that guy, super important. And then what comes from him, the Levites, just super, like, no, like, respectfully so. Incredibly important. God worked through these men. It was an amazing thing. Abram's incredible. The Levites did amazing things. Think of them. Think of how much they sweat all day, killing all these animals. Like, he sinned again? Oh, my gosh. But he's saying, like, even with all of that, Melchizedek is better. And then next week he's going to say, and even with all of that, Christ is way better than Melchizedek. It's an amazing thing. All right. <clears throat> I did the longest I could go on Melchizedek. Um, no, honestly, anybody else? Am I missing something about him? Or um, How do you, uh, how does this, does this help you? How does this help you looking at, how does this uh, passage with the author making these comparisons for you? I know it can be a challenge, but... I just, I just think it's... Um, I, I can almost remember when I read through Hebrews years ago and I saw this about Melchizedek and I 
continuity of scripture how uh, and, and realizing that oh oh yeah this idea of him of Christ being both king and prophet yeah that really didn't make sense to the Jews because of the you know the tribes he wasn't he, he wasn't of two tribes and so um, that was like oh yeah this is so cool mm-hmm. bringing bringing the continuity of the old and the new testament all centered then yeah Christ is just wow I mean it blew me away how how, how did it blow away <laughs> Hebrew Christians for centuries yeah. I can't even think of an equivalent for how it would apply to us. I mean, I guess we just look to Christ and that solves everything. But no, that's, I think, uh, something that the author of Hebrews has been talking about a lot is holding fast to what the Bible says. And he's pointing this out to be like, you're not hanging on to this, uh, clearly, so let me show you. And so what you just expressed, that's an example of application from this book and from this chapter, is seeing that and letting it like, you know, letting it just ooze into you, like the reality of like, oh, the continuity is so good. There's nothing wrong with being a, having Beatlemania over the fact that God is an incredible author. <laughs> that's fine. And that's a beautiful thing that we see here. Um, I think as people, we're even slightly called to just love stories in this way. because We're made to read this book. So that's a, that's a huge one too. How about... Um, I think something that something we definitely talked about in our first, second, third John class, but I think he's pushing it here. Um, confidence for the throne of grace. How does this bring confidence into your life as a Christian? Seeing this comparison with Melchizedek and Abram and Melchizedek and the Levites. I mean, I see, I mean, if if you trace this back to the character of God and what this says about God, uh, the God that we're walking with, is that, I mean, here he is. Yes, he spent (laughs) chapter after chapter of the Bible giving the law and then showing how Israel failed to keep the law and then promising something better. (laughs) But you see that before he even gave the law, I mean, he foreknew what was going to happen, and he laid the foundation pieces so that, you know, like I said, it's easy to kind of get caught up in the law. I mean, you see Christian groups that do the same thing, and it's, you see here, it's like God God knew that the law was going to be a temporary reality, and, you know, that's why all these things are here before the law was given. Mm-hmm. So that you know, we would go back and say, okay, you know, the law had its purpose and it revealed several things about God. Even in, in some details, we'll see it revealed all kinds of things about sacrifice and initiation and all those realities that Melchizedek never really did. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if, if you want to know about the nature of Christ's sacrifice, you have to go to the Levitical law to see the foreshadowing of sure. what was taking place there. Yeah, but. Uh, at the same time, I mean, just that temporal nature of the law, you know, we have to be careful when we deal with the law. It's like, okay, it had its purpose and it revealed things, mm-hmm. but it doesn't apply to us today. Something, what we're participating in transcends the law, mm-hmm. you know. 
Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, and that's something that was established uh, near the beginning of, or a same, similar concept that was established at Hebrew, the beginning of Hebrews 1. He's saying like, it's this weird thing where he's saying like, because Christ did this, now he upholds all things. He's like, well, isn't Christ God? How does that happen? It's like, well, it's progressive, progressive revelation. That's how it happens. Over time, it's revealed more and more. Christ didn't, well, in a sense, need to do those things to be God, but he did because that was the plan. He did these things. He did his ministry to become the person that upholds all things. In the same way, <clears throat> the Melchizedek priesthood, it's continuing on, but there's a moment in the story where you have the Levitical priests and you have the Levitical law and everything that's going on with the priesthood. But it needed to happen, but ultimately it culminates in Christ, right? It was... The plan was always there. And I think that this can be helpful for us um, with both discipleship and evangelism. With discipleship, when we maybe have these moments where maybe we're reading the Old Testament a lot and we're having that thing happen where you're just measuring yourself against this. And you're like, I am the worst. But <laughs> this can be very helpful to remember. Have that in your head. You know, you've got the Levitical priesthood in your head and these laws that are hard to read that's there but to remember this thing back here don't forget remember this thing back here well there is that obscure character Melchizedek that shows the established priesthood that is apart from these laws that God knew that I would fail but it was established before and it continued on to Jesus Christ that can be reassuring you know in these moments you know another for the evangelism part I was watching something the other day. This is a consist, a constant argument, but basically this young man was grilling this other young man who was a Christian, but unfortunately at the time was still growing. And he was just hitting him with all of these Levitical laws. Like, well, do you follow this? You say you're a Christian. Do you follow this? Do you, do you hug your mother when she's having her time? Because that's wrong. That's wrong. Huh? You're, you're not a Christian. And the Christian's like, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure. He's trying, you know, but I mean, he's being attacked at the same time, which is never fun for anybody. And my realization there is like, it's amazing how people will take a book that they don't understand, use parts of it to battle people who are trying to understand. It's a very interesting thing. But this Melchizedek thing, this can be helpful as well, because when you're, when you're witnessing to somebody, we can get caught up in talking to them about like, here's what you get. Let me be a salesman. You get, you get, you get eternal life, you get a church, and that's not the point. You're, when you're evangelizing, you're supposed to tell them about Jesus Christ, and that's gonna change everything about them, is knowing who he is, right? So when you're evangelizing and they're bringing up like, what about the Levitical law, slaves, you know, the things they always bring up, you'd be like, you know, even before that happened, there is an establishment of this, this beautiful priesthood from this king priest, his name's Melchizedek. But that was way before these laws ever were in place. And then those were in the middle and then it came and Christ fulfilled all of that. He fulfilled the establishment of it. He fulfilled the laws. He did everything. How can I point you back to Christ here? We can get off of this Old Testament law spiel that people seem to think is ammo, but it's not even ammo because they don't understand the Bible. Like, let me bring you back to Christ in this evangelistic conversation. So that could be helpful too with Melchizedek. Now you have this thing of like, well, before that was even there, like it was established. So, I mean, we can argue about this, but there's something else going on. Maybe you don't want to talk about your own sin anyhow. <laughs> yeah.
So that's helpful too. So thank you very much. Uh, we talked about Melchizedek a lot today. We saw how he is superior in his kingship and in this priestly order to the greatest patriarch, Abraham, and the Le- Levitical priests um, appointed by God, superior to both. And again, the reason that we looked at this today, that, we, that I took an hour of your lives to talk about Melchizedek, was so that next week we can compare Melchizedek, who is clearly superior, but we can compare him to Christ, who is obviously much more superior, but the author wants us to take a look and to really let this settle in. Prosecco, hold on to what it says. So, although Melchizedek is an obscure character, it's amazing how much he can teach us about the realities of Christ's superiority. Christ, who was not a king priest, but he was a king priest prophet who taught the word perfectly. He lived a perfect life. He was killed. He rose from the dead. He was the God-man. He is the hero of our story, the entire story of the world. He goes behind the curtain for us. He's the one who laid down his life for us. He was hated. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we'll do that next week.